Chapter 9 of The Blue Star by Fletcher Pratt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Blue Star. Chapter 9 Spring Festival. Intrigue of Count Cludy. Now the mask, Matherin, said Count Cludy. One corner of his lip twitched, the black eyes glinting with malice. He seemed as light and strong as one of those bronze statues of the winged man, knuckles resting on the table. His own costume was a rich purple, as he glanced from the mirror to Rodvard's face, massed down to the lower cheeks, but with lips bare. "'The chin is much alike. Turn around, Bergelin, slowly.' pivoting on the ball of the right foot. So. He lifted his own right arm, slightly bent, dropped his left hand to dagger-hilt, and illustrated. Rodvard tried to follow him. Not quite right with the dagger. You are jerky. But you will hardly be dancing a corabando. Have the goodness to walk across the room. Stand. Matherin, where does he lack the resemblance?' The servant's fingers came up to his lip. "'The voice is almost perfect, my lord, but there is something in the movement of the hands not quite—' "'It is only birth that does it,' said Cludy. "'The wrist laces. He is not very used to handling them. But for the rest, Berglin, you were born a most accomplished mimic and swindler. Remind me to dismiss you before your natural talent is turned in my direction.' Now the instruction. Repeat. I am to be at the ball when the opera is over, at least a glass before midnight. The fourth box on the left-hand side is yours. I am to look at the door-base of the second box, where a handkerchief will be caught. If it is white, edged with lace, perfumed with honey-musk, I am to go below and make myself seen at the gaming-tables. But if the handkerchief is blue and rose-perfumed, I am to take it away and leave in its place another. Then, without being seen on the dancing-floor or at the games, go at once to my lord's box, but leave the panels up and the curtains closed. Someone will presently tap twice, a lady. I am to greet her with my lord's sonnet, eat with her, declare my passion for her. My lord? Yes? What if, that is, I would— Cludy shot him a gleam, containing amusement mingled with a little dark shade of cruelty and the thought of shaming him with the full statement of his quaver. "'You want money, apprentice swindler? You should—no, my lord, it is not that. But—' The Count's toe tapped, his expression became a rictus, and Rodvard rushed on with heat at the back of his neck. "'What if the intrigue does not succeed?' That is, if you do not appear in time. The rictus became a bark. Ha! Huh, why, then, you must suffer the horrid fate of being alone in a secluded apartment with the shapeliest and most willing woman in Desola. Are you impotent? Rodvard half opened his mouth to protest in stumbling words that he was a promised man, who thought it less than honest to violate his given word. But Matherin tittered the stream of hate and fury that flowed from those black eyes, he only made a small sound. 
Cludy barked again. Ha! Huh, will you be a theologian, then? It is she who should make confession, not you. By the wise decision of the Church, as I was discussing but lately with the Episcopal of Zenz, the minor priests will say otherwise, but it is a reflection from the old days, before the present Congress of Episcopals. Listen, peasant, is it not manifestly to the glory of God that men should seek women for their first and highest pleasure, as it is that daughters should have all monetary inheritance? Is it not also manifest that all would be under the rule of women, who have the art as well as their arts, unless some disability lay upon them? Ah, uh, chut! Why do I talk like a deacon to be a bedamned clerk? Enough that I have given you an order. Greater things than you think hang on this intrigue, and you'll execute it well, or by the service, I'll reduce you to a state where no woman will tempt you again. Now take off that finery. Be prompt here at two glasses before midnight for Matherin to dress you. Two. But where does this intrigue lead? asked Rodvard. Could not your blue star give you a clue? said Matherin. They sat on a green bank behind the hall of conference, many colored tulips waving in the light breeze about them, and Rodvard carefully tore one of the long leaves to ribbons as he answered. No. There may have been something about Agramans in it, but he was not thinking of his central purpose at all, only about how it would be a nasty joke and a revenge. What? It was behind his lips to ask what he should do, lest he lose the power of the blue star, but in mid-flight he changed. What have you done toward saving Baron Brunovar? Will there be a rising? There was a quick note of suspicion and surprise in the eyes that lifted to meet his. Nothing for now, but to let Remagorius, and through him the high center, know what's in prospect. There's no accusation as matters stand. It will gain us nothing merely to put out the story that the court plots against him. Yet I do not understand why he has failed to fly when it's as clear as summer light that Forreston means the worst toward him. What I do not understand, said Rodvard, is why the high center has failed to make more preparation. It will be too late when Brunovar has been placed in a dungeon, under guard and accusation, with a shar of soldiers around him. It would never pass. Matherin's voice trailed off. He contemplated the lawns, brow deep, and Rodvard could not see his thought. I can understand the high center. What would never pass? You are more mysterious than the Count, friend Matherin, with your hints here and there. The servitor turned on him eyes of angry candor. Rodvard, yes and no, my friend. Cludy is right in calling you more of a moralist than a churchman is. By what right do you question me so? Do you think I am of the high center? Yet I will show you some of the considerations. It will never pass that the Chancellor should execute Brunovar and then have it proved that this fate came on him for some private reason. And now that you whip me to it, I will say as well that it will never pass that Brunovar should not be executed while we cry shame. We need a general rising, not a rescue that will drive many of us abroad. 
people will not leave their lives to fight until there is something in those lives that may not be sustained. Conscience again. Rodvard set his mouth. If you wish the reign of justice for others, it seems to me that you must give it yourself, Matherin, and I see no justice in watching a good man condemned to death when he might be saved. I heard the baron speak out in conference, and he might yet win something there, but even fled to Tritulaca or to Myron and Prince Pavinius, he would still be worth more than with his throat cut. The serving-man stood up. I'll not chop logic against you, only say, beware. You are a member under orders. Your own will or moral has nothing to do with the acts of the high center. Brunevar is nothing to us. Down with him. He is a part of the dead past which is all rotten at the heart, and of which we must rid ourselves for the living future. I will see you later, friend Bergelin. 3. A tray had been left in his room as usual, but Rodvard hardly ate from it before flinging himself down to lie supine, watching the pattern of light through the shutters as it slowly ticked across the wall, trying to resolve the problem that beset him. Brunevar, with his noble aspect and surely his noble mind. Free will and the love of humankind, the baron had said, and they called it the doctrine of the apostate prophet. Yet for what else had he himself joined the sons of the new day? What else had the baron put into practice out there in his province of the West? Yet here is Matherin saying that no happiness could be bought by love of humankind, since certainly no love of humankind would let a high man go to shameful death when it might be prevented. No, perhaps that was not true either. Even barbarians had sacrifices by which one gave his life that many might live, though their method in this was all superstition and clearly wrong. But only by the consent of the one, Rodvard answered himself, only when there was no way but sacrifice. Brunevar had made no consent, was being pushed to a sacrifice, by malignance on one side, with the other accepting the unwilling gift he gave. Yet in that acceptance was there not something base and selfish? He remembered the curious unformed thought of treachery he had surprised in Remigorius' mind, Madame Kaja's active betrayal, Matherin's violence, and was glad they were joined with him in one of the minor centers of the Sons of the New Day. When that day rose, but then too late for Brunevar, ah, if there were some deliverance, some warning one could give that would be heeded. A clock somewhere boomed four times. Rodvard twisted on the bed, thinking bitterly how little he could do even to save himself, willing in that moment to be the sacrificed one. With witchery one might. Lalette. Little cold drops of perspiration gathered down his front from neck to navel at the perilousness of the intrigue in which he was now embarked for the night, perilous and yet sweet, delight and danger, so that with half his mind he wished to rise and run from this accursed place, come what might. With the other half it was to stay and hope that Clutie would not interrupt the rendezvous in the box, as he had said, 
so that the heart-striking loveliness he had now and again seen from far in the last seven days, for he did not doubt that the mass to meet him in the box would cover the Countess Ayella, might lie in his arms, come what might to the felon of Lalette's witcheries. Was he himself one of those whose purposes were hideous, as Toloan the butler had put it, with an inner desire toward treachery toward her who had received his word of love? Wait! The word had been wrung from him, given under a compulsion, was the product of a deed done under another compulsion. This, too. Before a high court I will plead, thought Rodvard, that I myself, the inner me who cherishes ideals still, in spite of Matherin or Toloan, had no part in betrayals, and recognized as he thought thus that the union in the place of masks was that of very inner me, given forever, or forever minus a day. Flee, then. Where? A marked man and a penniless, trying to escape across the sceneries, with only a clerk's skill which demands fixities to gain bread. Brunevar might perhaps be held from flying to safety by compulsions as tight as these, at which the wheel of thought had turned full circle. And the realization of this shattering the continuance of the motion, Rodvar drifted off into an uneasy doze, twitching in his place. He came fully awake with a final jerk, swinging feet to the floor in the twilight, stood up, made a light, and, not daring to go on with his self-questionings, pecked a little at the gelid remains of his noon viands, while speculating on Cludy's intrigue. But the Count had so buried the line of his plan that nothing could be made of this either. Rodvard went to seek Toloan, in the hope that he might have some light. Vain hope! The butler's cabinet was dark, and everyone else encountered in the corridors was hurrying, hurrying with burdens here and there, in preparation for the grand ball. There was an atmosphere of anticipatory excitement that built up along Rodvard's nerve chains, until he stepped forth into the spring eve to escape it. Out there the evening had turned chill, with a damp breeze off the eastern sea that spoke of rain before sun. All the flowers seemed to have folded their wings around themselves to meet it, and Rodvard felt as though nature had turned her back. He longed for a voice, and as a girl's form came shadowy around a turn of the path, he gave her good evening and asked if he might bear her burden. "'Ah, no, it is not needed,' said she, drawing back. But a shaft of light from a window caught them both, and there was a mutual recognition, she being the breakfast chambermaid, whose name was Damaris. "'Oh, your pardon, sir,' she said. "'It is most good of you.' and let him take her package, which was, in truth, heavy. Why, this must be gold, or lead, or beef, not flowers, as it should be on festival eve, he said, and she trilled a small laugh before answering that festival it might be for those badged with coronets or quills, but for her class it was a night of labor. And it is not gold, or I would run away with it, but one of those double bottles of argent fired wine for the box of the Count Cludy, whom you serve. She turned her head, and in the light which threw across the path from another window, he caught a glint of her eyes. She was very friendly after a week of bringing him breakfasts, in which he had treated her as courteously as though she were high-born. 
"'Will you have no festival at all, then?' he asked. "'Oh, yes, to-morrow afternoon, when all the court's asleep. In the evening, when they wake, it will be duty again.' They had reached the door of the great hall. Within, workmen were attaching flowers to the bowered dais where the musicians would play. There was a sound of hammering from somewhere along the balcony behind the boxes, and to Alain, the high butler, was revolving in the midst of the dancing-floor, pointing where a flower-chain should be draped or a chair placed. His movement was that almost prance which Cludie had demonstrated. The girl's face turned toward Rodvard. Her eyes suddenly said she wished him to ask her something. He could not quite make out what, they were so quickly withdrawn, but it was connected with the festival. "'I'll have no festival myself, unless someone takes pity on me,' he said. That was it. "'Will you come and dance with me? It is only a servant's ball.' She was a little frightened at her own boldness in asking someone so far above her in station, yet trembling, hopeful he would accept. "'Why, you have no partner?' "'My friend has been called away to serve in the army. I have my ticket already, and it will only be three spadas for yourself.' Somehow he would get them. It would be an afternoon of real relaxation from complexities. "'You honour me, demoiselle Damaris. Where shall I meet you?' "'Oh, I will wake you with breakfast as usual, and wait for you. Here is the door.' The box was larger than one might think from the outside, and already heavy with the perfume of flowers. End of chapter 9